If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Crooked Combos is brought to you by Burrow. Guys, Burrow has reinvented the luxury couch. From Neither style, a lender nor a Burrow B. From style to shipping, Burrow has put the time and thought into furniture buying so you don't have to. I don't know about you guys, but I remember when I lived in D.C., uh, me and my roommates at the time put, we bought our first other like sort of expensive couch. It was like a le- green leather, like shitty one. And we put it on the top of Brian's 1987 Chevy Celebrity. And we drove it from Bethesda down to our place and that was a bad experience do you think that when you tell a story like that automatically salisbury road stars that song starts playing underneath (laughs) salisbury hill salisbury hill (laughs) (laughs) so there i was just some bozo from boston moving to the big city (laughs) (laughs) the thing about burrow is it's adaptable so your space space changes our modular design allows it to move and grow with you with stain resistant fabric that can take on your pet's claws and your they have a built-in USB charger at Burrow has the durability and functionality to keep up with your hectic life. It is the same quality you expect from high-end retailers without breaking the bank. All Burrow's furniture is shipped fast, and the shipping is free. <laughs> the setup is super easy, as is moving again. Let me get through it before you play the thing that we'll have to cut. Enjoy 30 days of cozy on your Burrow, risk-free, or try out Burrow at one of their showrooms today. I would like Burrow to uh, set up a process for Tanya Sominator, our head of content, to try out Burrow. She's moving to a new apartment. She needs a couch. If you're listening, we would love to do a testimonial. We're crowdsourcing Tanya's couch. Crooked Shakedowns. For 75 bucks <laughs> off your order, visit burrow.com slash crookedconvos. That's burrow.com slash crookedconvos for $75 off your purchase. Hi, everyone. This is Julissa Arce. I'm the author of My Underground American Dream, my new book, Someone Like Me, is coming out of September. Check it out. I am super excited for this conversation. It was a super intriguing conversation around protest, what works in a protest, how we can leverage the protest. And our guests today are Maria Yuan, and she is the founder of Issue Voter, a nonpartisan platform that offers everyone a voice in our democracy by making civic engagement accessible, impactful, and efficient. And I should mention that, full disclosure, Maria and I are besties. Um, And we also have with us Micah White, who is the co-creator of Occupy Wall Street and the author of the book, The End of Protest, a new playbook for revolution. So have a listen, share it, you're gonna love it. First of all, like, thank you for taking the time to speak with us for this quick conversation. I wanted to have this conversation for a while now because I've been out there marching for months, uh, going to tons of marches, and I still haven't gotten my check from George Soros, so I don't know what's up with that. But I've been asking myself this question about what happens after I go protest and how can we leverage what happens at the protest, the momentum, the inspirational moments to actually build the kind of change that we all hope to see when we put on our sneakers and our pussy hats and go out on the streets. And I couldn't think of two better people to talk to about this topic because both of you are doing really important work to have a very critical look at the protest, to think about how we built on the protest, what we need to change about them so that we can see the change we 
all hope to see. So Maria, I wanna I wanted to start with you because you've worked at a state representative's office in Texas, you've worked at a political campaign in Iowa, and in your experience, what makes our representatives care about the issues that their constituents are protesting about? What what is the thing that actually makes them go, oh, I need to pay attention to this, I need to do something about it? So I think you said part of the answer in your question, which was one, that you have to actually be a constituent. Um, their responsibility is to their constituency. And so that's one of the reasons why I always say that uh, petitions really frustrate me, because petitions are merely a list of names. And as an elected representative, there's no reason for them to necessarily pay attention to just a list of names. Um, So number one, be a constituent. I think that's um, key. Also, I think that contacting your rep in any channel Uh, I think actually does make a difference. So when I was working for a state rep, what I noticed is that so few people actually reached out that when people did, it really made a difference. And it was very noticeable. I think that what was noticeable is when it was individuals reaching out as opposed to people reaching out as part of a petition or advocacy group. Hmm. But so, And and so do you think that's changing now? I feel like besides marching, I'm also like, calling my state representatives, my congressmen, like every day. So do you think that's changing now that people are more aware and actually are making more phone calls and that people are starting, like the representatives are starting to take notice? I think that representatives always took notice. Representatives typically would get a tally every week of the amount of constituent contact, what constituents were um, contacting them about. And so now the volume is so much on the phones that it's actually being almost having the opposite effect, I think being drowned out. There are so many calls that are not getting through. And so what I tell people is contact your rep electronically. Um, And it still is counted. A tally is a tally at the end of the day. And, you know, what happens to all those unanswered phone calls that ends up with people just being frustrated and not heard. And so the analogy that I've used is, you know, now we can order our food by going to a restaurant. We can, um, you know, call and pick it up or we can have it delivered through an app. And no matter how I order my food, I still want it to taste good. So no matter what way I contact my representative, I care about the issue just as much. And I think that is changing because there will never be enough hours in the day or enough staffers to answer even a small percentage of the constituents that a representative covers. Uh, Most congressional representatives, you know, they have around 700,000 constituents. And so the only way for the majority of people's voices to be heard is electronically. And so I'm a big proponent of that. I want to come back to a couple of things that you said, but Micah, it's interesting talking to you, especially because, you know, Maria, who's sitting in the room with you and me, both worked on Wall Street. So Occupy Wall Street definitely like prevented me from getting to work on time a couple of times. I just (laughs) wanted to go say, I just wanted to tell you that. But, you know, you you co-created Occupy Wall Street, which was an incredible movement protest that lasted months. It ex- it spread to over 80 countries. It received what felt like almost around the clock media attention. So someone could say, you know, that was like a very successful protest and movement that you started. So I wanted to ask you about when you were seeing this wealth disparity and some of the dangerous practices on Wall Street and you decided to do something about it, why was it that at that time, you want it to protest in the way that that you did and and has that changed because like, your mindset around your strategy changed since then mm. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question. It's like a really big question. I think that, you know, my background is I, I'm a lifelong activist. So I've been, you know, protesting since I was 13 years old. Um, and I've been trying to achieve social change through what would be described, I guess, as extra parliamentary uh, methods, which would be not necessarily involving one's elected representatives, but trying to create social and political change, like, you know, despite them or without their involvement. And that's what protest mm. is supposed to be, I guess, in a certain way. And so, um, you know, when we came up with the idea for Occupy Wall Street, I was working at a magazine called Adbusters, which is a Canadian kind of activist magazine. And I think that, you know, my analysis kind of of Occupy Wall Street is that it was basically the kind of the culmination and the total basically realization of one storyline about how social change um, could be achieved through street actions and through not engaging with one's elected representatives and not making demands on one's elected representatives, but instead somehow, um, and now after, you know, years of thinking about it, I think it, ha- it comes back to this idea of, of popular sovereignty, this idea that, you know, power in our government is supposed to lay with lie with the people and that if the people right. can get into the streets, then somehow magical thinking elected representatives will, will have to listen to them. Um, and not only listen, but have to obey, um, I think, is the most important thing is that there is this idea that, you know, if if 50 percent of Americans march in the streets, well, then the government will have to do whatever they say. And of course, we never got to 50 percent. Um, but, you know, I think that we're still seeing the limitations of that approach. Um so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of thinking. I mean, there's a, yeah, my thinking has evolved quite a bit about um, how to achieve change. Um, I think protest still plays a role, but I think it has to be we have to evaluate basically our theories of of, of why protest is supposed to work, and then adjust our protest tactics. Yeah, I mean, I I read one, an article you wrote for the Guardian in which you gave the example of the civil rights march in 1963 that led to the civil Rights Act in 1964, and that perhaps is like a very good example of you can see the through line between the protest and the change uh, that came about. So, what are what are some of the things that we can learn from that march that did lead to policy change? And you know, I understand like perhaps the thinking is we shouldn't always just depend on our elected representatives, but I think given the system that we live in, like we need them to to bring bills up for vote and actually bring them to the floor for vote. So what about this March in 1963 that led to the Civil Rights Act? What can we learn about that that we can implement today from the protest? Well, I don't know. I think it's a tough question because I think that in some ways, you know, you have to ask yourself whether or not the goal of your of social activism is to kind of make policy changes or is it to kind of trans or is it to transform the way in which we live and you know that's like the broader kind of revolutionary goal was to always to transform how we lived how transform how decisions were made so i think you know the standard you know for those who kind of say well i i've given up on the idea of transforming how we live and how decisions are made then they then they then they draw back onto ideas of well at least i can kind of um provide a public spectacle that gives momentum and justification for elected representatives to kind of um, make policy changes. So, I mean, I think personally, I'm kind of jaded on this idea that that policy changes will give us the results that we need. Hmm. And that's why I think that the the march is a kind of it's an ambiguous example, you know, because I think one way to read it is like that it led to great things like desegregation and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But another way to read it is right, that but we're it, still dealing with so much of that. Exactly. Another now. way to read it is, hello, we still have people getting shot in the street. You know, I'm reading right. stories after story about black people getting, you know, what those people in, rented an Airbnb and then the helicopter yeah. police. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Every single day it's a new story. So so I think we have to be careful in terms of 
I think it's really important first to ask, what is our goal? That's that's what I'm trying to say. What is our goal? Is our goal policy changes or is it a revolutionary transformation? And I'm starting to think that that when people move to protest from being about revolution into policy changes is one of the problems. Is that's that's actually one of the problems? Is that protest wasn't designed for policy changes? <laughs> you know, it was designed it was designed to transform one's government. Um, so it's, mm. it's it's tricky. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a really good point because whenever I think about change, I'm always I think I tend to approach it within the context of policy, and there can be just one tiny law that can change something. And then, of course, there can be really revolutionary things. And I, I, I think I agree. Like, I don't think that you get to a revolution um, through a policy change. <laughs> but I do still think policy change is important. I do think that there are policy changes that can have revolutionary type of changes, right? Like when I think about like immigration, for example, and I know listeners probably, you know, this is something I very much care about and I talk about it a lot and write about it a lot. But I do think that there is a revolutionary change that would happen in people's lives if we legalize them, right? If they didn't have to worry about getting deported. And so, um, but I I understand the point of, of, you know, perhaps the change needs to be bigger and our and our goals when we protest need to be bigger than just um no Micah, you said in another article like the the action after the women's march was like send a postcard to your representative right. and and you know perhaps the action um needed to be bigger or the ask needed to be bigger and we need to start thinking bigger well what i like about that point about making it bigger is actually so when we think about the women's march it was still really like less than five percent of women in the u.s it's still a very small 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 percentage of people um yeah. but, but i do think it was like very inspirational right like i i do think that uh, when you look at like the women's march and how inspired people were um from just being being around so many people like there's so many more women that and and men and progressive men that have signed up to to run now and we're seeing like record numbers of people uh wanting to run for office in their communities people who may have never have done it before if it wasn't because they were so inspired and so moved by those actions but i think that i mean this is the thing about social change is it's very difficult um to think about because one of the problems is that we actually live in a time of of dramatic social change in all areas like not only technological social technological changes which is leading all kinds of social changes but you know just think in my own lifetime you know like uh, legalization of marijuana, gay marriage, like whole sweeping changes, uh, cultural norms are being changed. And so sometimes it feels like activists actually take credit for for social changes that are not the result of protest in a certain sense. Like I think that it's so it's it's very hard to tell, what, you know, it's a kind of a chicken and egg situation. Um, but I think also, you know, it's not that I don't think it's necessarily that we have to make really big sweeping revolutionary demands. I think that instead it's about that the that the ultimate demand that matters is 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 saying that we will be the ones who will institute these policy changes. Like so, for example, you know, one thing about if you look at like the Re- Russian Revolution, which is really interesting, is one of their big demands was like you know the Bolsheviks would demand all the time is an eight-hour workday. You know, mm-hmm. like so we look at that now, and you wouldn't say an eight-hour workday. You wouldn't list that as like a you would you know in our minds we wouldn't think the Bolsheviks would demand something that is to us so um, commonsensical in a certain sense. But I think that the deeper thing is, in order to get an eight-hour workday, they had to completely transform their society. So I think that it's mm-hmm. it's like you you the 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 policy change can you can be asking for a policy change that is in itself not huge, but it has to be something that in order to accomplish that would require a transformation of one's government. I think is kind of um, 
the, the, the crux of the problem. Quick Conversation is brought to you by Quip. No matter who you are, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day to stay healthy, and Quip knows it. That's why their team of dentists and designers is focused on helping you take care of your mouth better. For starters, it's an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibration to help you clean your teeth. What was that? The built-in timer helps uh, you clean for the dentist. Get through it. Get through it. Recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch. Next, their subscription plans are for your health and not just your convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. It also comes with a, a mounted thing that goes on your mirror <laughs> and unsticks to use as a cover for the hygienic travel when you, you take it on the road. Finally, everybody uses Quip and they love it. It's on Oprah's O-List. It was named one of Time's Best Inventions. It's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Tommy, does I'm it vibrate? Sick, I'm sick of this mandatory copy. I want you guys to know that I went to the dentist recently and it fills me with fear and trepidation because I've had so many cavities. And they told me that my teeth look great. And I told them I was using a Quip and they said, oh, that's great. That's a good toothbrush. What an inspiring story. So enough of your think, bolded content. I think, though, the part, problem is you forgot to mention the, the vibrations or the guiding pulses. That's, why, that's how it got on the O-list. Go to getquip slash crooked convos. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash crooked convos. Quip starts at just 25 bucks. If you go to getquip.com slash crooked convos right now, they'll hook you up. Sounds Take like it's on Tommy's O-list. With Quip electric <laughs> toothbrush. I want to go back to something, Maria, you mentioned earlier, which was about about petitions and whether they're... I just kind of wanted to peel it back to, to the more granular stuff. So you, you talked about the petitions and how perhaps they're not, they're not also like the most effective thing. Petitions um, are a list-building tool for advocacy. That is all they are. They want your email so that they can come back to you and ask for donations. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that. Those yeah. organizations need money to exist. Um, and to continue doing what they're doing. But I don't think that we should be, you know, let's just be really honest about petitions. They're list building. That's such refreshing honesty. It's so true, though. It is true. They are, they are, yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, I, might, I saw an article you wrote. I think you, call, you called it, was it clicktivism? Clicktivism, yep. yep. That, that's the word you use, right? Mm. So if petitions aren't the most effective thing, and, you know, I'm, I, I'm probably like... Uh, super I think sometimes like I'm just like way too optimistic about things perhaps but like I've seen uh, some um, petitions work specifically sorry to bring it back again to immigration but not really that sorry um, whenever we have people who who sign on to petitions for the release of someone who's in detention for example um, so they're very specific right it's very specific saying we want this person to be released from detention and we've seen them be very effective to get people released from detention. But uh, but perhaps when we're talking about petitions that are more broadly, they don't have the intended impact because what you were saying, Maria, that representatives care about their constituents and, and they don't really care if someone in Los Angeles cares about something that's happening in Austin, Texas, right? Um, so what is an alternative to I don't. So I petitions? don't think it's one thing. I think it's a circular process. So I think there's this aspect of the intersection between voting in elections and having your voice heard between elections when the real work that our elected officials do gets done. And that's the work that affects our lives, namely passing laws throughout the year. So, 
you know, Congress passes or Congress introduces over 10,000 laws each session. About a thousand of them are voted on. And we hear about a handful on the news. You know, this year um, and this past year, we've heard about you know, the health care bill, the tax bill, the DREAM Act, some gun laws. And, you know, meanwhile, Congress is voting on new laws every single day. So there's an aspect where people can have an impact throughout the year by voicing their opinions on specific issues that they care about. Um, but I do think that that has to be done in conjunction with voting, because there's an aspect where we are continuing to elect people who aren't representing us. And I don't think that there's a lot of there's a lot of forces in play. I mean, you know, people people talk about, you know, money in politics, et cetera, et cetera. But no matter at the end of the day, no matter how much money a candidate raises, if they don't get the votes, they're not getting elected. Meanwhile, we have a situation where, you know, co- congressional approval ratings are typically 15 percent or lower and 90 percent of people are reelected. And so that is because people are is not that voting. Is people are not voting? It's absolutely because people aren't voting. Um, the last midterm election had the lowest voter turnout since the war. Uh, so, and, and then we complain about it. And I think it's not just voting in the, um, and we've talked about a little bit of this, it's not just voting in November, it's voting in primaries. Because I think we also have this situation where people get elected or, you know, or there's incumbents that are, I mean, to give, a, to give a very specific example, so we haven't really talked about issue voter, but what we can see from- Yeah, tell us about issue voter. So, Data. So I'll get to some data on issue voter. But yeah, so the background. Um, so, so a lot of these frustrations that we've been talking about are why I created issue voter. And what it does is it sends you alerts before Congress is about to vote on issues you care about, because I don't expect people to monitor the 10,000 plus bills. Uh, we translate them into layman's terms, along with what both sides are saying. And then one click sends your opinion to your rep's office, and you get a scorecard that tracks the percentage of time your rep is voting, how you would want them to vote. And I think that's key. So not just you know voicing your opinion into some void and hoping it's heard, but whether or not it's heard, whether or not your rep is acting on your singular opinion, you can at least see whether they're representing you and know whether you should reelect them in the next election. And so what I was what I was leading into was you know something interesting we've seen on issue voter is uh, people in San Francisco who the majority would consider themselves Democrats, liberal, progressive, left, you know, whatever word you want to use, are seeing that Nancy Pelosi is not necessarily representing them. And so I think there also sometimes is a laziness when it comes to having a rep that you think is the same party as you, whether that be Democrat or Republican, and and kind of getting comfortable there, where people need to kind of realize that within a party, there's still a spectrum. Um, Something that I was, you know, I was even surprised to see is that of all of the Republican reps, um, the rep that seems to be representing people the most through on issue voter, at least through our um, user data, is Paul Ryan. So I thought that was very interesting. But is that is that um, because the people? Well, well, that's kind of like people who elected him are people who agree with him, and so if he's voting with how their constituents are oh well so this data for him. so to parse that apart so when so the nancy pelosi example that's like specifically her constituents the paul ryan example i should have specified that's our general user data like all of our users pop- population if we were to look at like like hypothetically i think we got to get more crooked listeners <laughs> to the- be on this on this data <laughs> <laughs> who are yeah. the people who are using issue voter yeah. yeah but i mean it's it's um so there's there's two ways that we can look at the data. It's basically we can look at um, in aggregate which representatives are most representative of our users, and then specifically for each by district. 
Hmm. That's that's all I was saying. But um, I think it's. I mean, I think what's interesting here though is about is is questions about the nature of democracy because I think that. What we're saying is, you know, like what I've been researching, thinking a lot about, you know, the nature of democracy in America. And one of the things that we have about our government is that, you know, the early the founding fathers were they were equally opposed to monarchy as they were to democracy. That's why they created a system like a Republican form of government where 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 like we just saw in the last election, where the popular vote doesn't actually pick the president. Instead, you have these electoral colleges. And instead of having right. instead of having people like in uh, in ancient Greece, where the people actually themselves governed, we have representatives and this kind of thing. Hmm. You know, and in the 19th century, like in America, people would run for Congress and they wouldn't even specify their political positions. You'd be, you would vote for them instead based on their presumed virtue as like being mm. a good person, you know. And it wasn't until like the mid nineteenth people would get elected that way now. Exactly. It wasn't until or the mid nineteenth century when we when we started to expect that our representatives would take policy positions, say what they want, what they would do if faced with you know a vote on this issue and that issue, and then they were supposed to align themselves somehow to their constituency. So it almost I think the the point I'm trying to make is it's almost like we've gotten into this weird kind of. Twist twisted position where we're stuck with a representative form of democracy, but what we actually want is a direct form of democracy, but we can't have one because of the Constitution. And so we keep trying to say, well, is there some way that we can make our representatives equal our desires? <laughs> when, in, when, in, when in fact, maybe the answer is no without some sort of revolution that transforms how decisions are made because ultimately the whole point is that once they're elected, they don't have to listen to their constituents. I mean, that's, that's kind Unless of Unless we vote. Right, unless we vote yes, them out. Unless exactly. you vote them out. But in between, there is no real, um, there's no guarantee. I mean, even with Trump, we're seeing it now. He's, you know, he's gone against his some of his campaign promises, all kinds of stuff. There is no, um, there, it's it's a flaw in our kind of democracy. And so it's it's like we want something that, that might not be possible under this form of government. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I don't think I'm necessarily for a direct democracy because I don't, I'm not a policy expert. I don't want to have to monitor all of these things all the time. Like, that's not my job. Well, I, also, I want to I elect someone think, to do that for me. But I think yeah, that... Yeah, and I also think that's something that, that, you know, we kind of we kind of tend to forget about because, you know, I consider myself an activist now too. And, uh, and I think, you know, these are the things I think about every single day. I think about how do we make change? I think about who's getting elected. I think about who can I support? What can I do to help this community, that community? But that's that's not just my activism that's like my full-time job right mm. and so and i think us three in this in in this conversation i think we think about these issues a lot right and we've uh, Mike, you've dedicated your life to this since you were 13 years old and in and, and, and being an activist and so i think there's a little bit of a disconnect sometimes i think with how we think about it versus how people who are just every day going to work and perhaps they don't have time to think about it or uh, to take more like meaningful actions, which is why you know going to a protest is something people feel like they can do, and hopefully it makes a change. People feel like they can sign a petition, and it's something that makes a difference. And so, mm-hmm. what I kind of want to, I'm hoping to, that that we can all think about is like, given that people are worried about their everyday lives, their jobs, feeding their kids, their relationships, getting a promotion, whatever people wake up thinking about every day, are there things that they can still do and they can still participate in that can make a change because you know they do a lot of people want to see a change they're not happy with the way things are especially since November 2016 and how can we sort of garner that that enthusiasm that 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 anger maybe even that people have to to do something 
Mm. Like, what are those practical things that we can tell people? You can do this, and it's more, it's, you know, keep marching, because I do I do think that it's important to see people, to visibly see people. And, you know, bringing it back to Occupy Wall Street, to be honest, like, it, it really did make me think, like, Mm. Am I part of the problem by working in this in this building, right? Because I wanted to go work at Wall Street because I wanted to make money. I mean, that's just like honesty, right? And there's very few things that people can do to make that much money when you're 23 years old or 24 years old. Mm-hmm. And it did make me, it did confront me with, am I part of this big problem? Because I didn't see it that way before, right? Mm. I, I would go to work and I would get my paycheck and I would do my thing. And seeing people who were out there day after day after day, I had to ask myself this question. Like, mm-hmm. you know, am I playing a part in this super big issues that are happening around the world and this wealth disparity in people working 40 hours a week and still not making ends meet? So I do think it's important to to have bodies on the street taking up space and bringing attention to these issues. However, I, I agree that there needs to be more because just being out there on the street doesn't lead to the type of change that we want to see. I mean, though, it's hard, though, because I don't think that, you know, raising awareness, which is something that people talk a lot about since Occupy Wall Street was never our goal. And in fact, like, I don't even know who invented that that someone I, I would we need to tr- figure out who it was that invented the idea that the that the success of Occupy Wall Street is measured by the fact that we raised awareness, because I think that's one of the kind of like insidious things that happened. I mean, I think that what I'm trying what I would say is that, you know, any time that you create a social movement that spreads as big as Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or the Women's March or any of the social movements, even Parkland, anything that spreads as big as these things are, they always raise awareness. That is a, it's a by, it's a necessary byproduct. It's like it's like when you cook food, it makes a smell. But the goal of, of cooking food is not to make a smell. And so there's right. there's this kind of this this problem where we look at the symptoms um, and we try to treat those as the successes. I think that the literal goal of Occupy Wall Street was to end the power of money over our politics. And we didn't achieve that. I mean, and so it, it's very, it's very, it's difficult. And I think that so so while it, so while it does have good side effects, I don't think that those are the primary goals. Um, and ultimately, it's like I, I think the thing that I that I that I think about is what if there is nothing that uh, that people can do? And what if and what if the problem is that we keep trying to tell people that there is some sort of inconsequential and meaningless action that they can do that's going to create change? And there isn't one. And that the only solution really is some sort of terrifying and scary and messy revolution like the American Revolution or the French Revolution um, that that then founds a new constitution and then founds a new political order. And that's a huge thing to ask. And that can't be created just by us any every other day. So I, it is I feel like I, 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 I kind of I struggle with that is like maybe there is nothing to tell these people. Um, and maybe that's OK, you know, <laughs> instead of mm. instead of telling them things like, you know, well, yeah. I think it goes back to what you're saying about it's your. It depends on your goal, right? You can have big goals and you can have small goals, mm-hmm. and I think that both of those are great. Uh, so a big goal would be something like a revolution. A smaller goal would be a policy change, um, and or I, even just getting like better better people elected, right? Or like getting yeah. like actually getting yourself to vote. And and we are going to have very soon. Uh, very important midterm elections. And I am hopeful that given everything that's going on, that people will actually come out to vote and that we'll see record number of voters 
in November saying, I am tired of this and I'm going to go cast my vote because that is still something that is very powerful, right? Like our, our vote is powerful and it makes a difference. And um, I think it makes a difference yeah. even more so when it comes to people who are in Congress and, and in these midterm elections, sometimes bigger than than in a presidential election. But everyone's always so focused on who's going to be president that we forget that we're supposed to have a government that has equal power, like different branches of government have equal power, and therefore it should matter just as much who is our Right. House of the Congress, branch, exactly. right? Then our and our president. Um, I mean, when you, so when you ask the question, what can people do? I think of it. I kind of put it in three categories. Um, I, I would say absolutely vote, both in November and in primaries. Um, oh, and, Maria, tell us about that. That oh thing yeah. That so Issue Voter created this awesome map. I mean, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but it actually is very helpful. So what it is, it's an interactive map where you can just click on your state and see when your primary elections are. And some states have more than one. So they'll have a primary and then they'll have a runoff. Um, and so that way people can you know, put it on your calendar and prepare for that. Uh, so vote in elections, I would say, is one thing people can do. Secondly, you know, before you vote, actually find out if your rep is representing you before you reelect them. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious, but it does take a lot of work to do that. I mean, honestly, I don't, like you said, you know, you might be an activist, but most people are not. And so taking the time to do these things, like, yes, it does take time, but it's doable. It is very doable if you can prioritize it. And I think people should definitely prioritize voting. So voting is number one. Number two, knowing whether your rep, doing the research to know whether your rep is actually representing you. And three, I would say there are things people can do throughout the year, you know, we talked about kind of the the start of this conversation was protests, but there are things like donating to organizations. You know, maybe people don't have a lot of spare time, but they have money. Uh, or there are things like, um, you know, supporting candidates that are running for office, uh, running for office yourself, um, learning more about um, local politics. Um, there are ways where you can really see some of that impact, I think, if you get really local as well. Um, volunteering for organizations if you have time. So I think there's there are things that you can kind of do along the way um, that don't have to be a full-time job. I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, I I, I guess what, what fascinates me, though, is there's there's this idea among progressives. And actually, it's shared by the left and the right, but, the, but progressives are really champion it. And the idea basically is that the solution to all of our political problems is to find good people and put them into office because then they'll make good decisions. And this, this, it makes this kind of, it's like a kind of a seductive logic that, I, that in the end of the day seems like totally flawed because isn't that, isn't that like, wasn't that the lesson of Obama? Isn't the whole point of Obama that, that we did elect someone? I mean, I didn't vote for him. I, I, I should admit, I actually don't vote. So, <laughs> um, but isn't Don't the listen po- to him, guys. I know. Go don't vote. Li- oh, go no. Vote. Yeah, don't listen to me. But anyways, <laughs> but isn't the larger point that, that, that Obama symbolized the good person that got into office and who tried to do good things, but it didn't. It didn't help. It didn't make a difference. That's the whole point. So I think that there's something. Well, it didn't make zero difference. I mean, that's it, that's kind of a broad statement. Nothing right? makes zero difference, but it didn't. You know, everything. There are still problems in the world. Even every there's good and evil in everything, and even Trump will look back on it and say, "Well, there's some good things that." He I did. don't think so. I, well, anyway, <laughs> I mean, I think the deeper point though is that is is this strategy of trying to get good people elected. Is that enough? Like, but what is, do you mean by good? For me, it's not about good or bad. It's like just someone that represents your what you want. So the the frustrating thing about to me about politics is that 
Congress is not representing the majority of Americans, whether or not I agree with that, even taking myself out of it. So, for example, like 74% of NRA members are for background checks. Hmm. Congress isn't doing that. Hmm. 86% of Americans are for um, campaign finance reform. Congress isn't doing that. So there are just common sense things, um, you know, voter ID laws. There are, there are ways to fix that that other countries have already figured out. So that to me, I think that's my biggest frustration is just there's these common sense things that the majority of Americans, left or right or middle or independent, whatever, um, actually agree on. Right. And they're not getting done. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Sleep Number. Maybe you've heard us talk about the amazing Sleep Number 360 smart beds. They are so smart, they respond to your every movement and automatically adjust to you. What if your movement is sitting on a nearby couch while two women stand on the bed and defile it? (laughs) Whoa, didn't know where that was going. Yeah, isn't that exciting? (laughs) That was a journey. Uh, The great news is their latest smart beds are even more comfortably priced during their semi-annual sale that's going on right now. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. Sleep number beds let you choose your ideal firmness on each side so it's just right for you. You can actually feel how it contours to your neck, your shoulders, your back, and your hips, relieving <laughs> pressure. Where was that going? Did he get very that, soft? He got very that, kind of... I, is that just, a rap lyric? I just <laughs> waited, I, I'm just waiting for Lovett to make a... Your neck, your back. Uh, yeah, that, relieving yeah, pressure it. points was... for more proper spinal alignment. There's even adjustment for snoring. How great is that? Come in now during the semi-annual sale to see Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds with special Memorial Day savings up to $700. $700? There are more than 550 Sleep Number stores. Visit sleepnumber.com slash crookedconvo, no S, to find a store near you. That's sleepnumber.com slash crookedconvo, singular. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And Micah, can I ask you a, qu- a quick question? I mean, I read like pretty much like every article you've written. They're very good. Thank you. Um, but in one of the articles, I think you, if I'm, if I understood it correctly, you were sort of alluding to this um, notion that social movements should govern. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that I read that is that you're essentially perhaps advocating that that social movements become political parties. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then but then you're talking about you don't vote, but then wouldn't people have to vote for these people? No, absolutely. No, absolutely. I think we all agree. Everyone agrees that that voting at done at the right moment is is and can be a revolutionary act. And so the question is, well, when is the right moment? And so Absolutely. If there was a social movement like a Black Lives Matter party, an Occupy party or whatever, you know, Parkland party or whatever, and I was and I was believed that it could govern effectively and would make transformative social change, I'd totally vote for it. Uh, I think what I'm trying to what I'm trying to push back against is this idea that we should basically just, um, you know, vote for the lesser evil and these kind of like, you know, system arguments. I mean, I think that the, that what I'm trying to say, though, is that there is this and I think where I kind of agree with Maria is there there is this really interesting the subtext of the argument that we're saying is who the people that we vote into office should represent their voters, i.e. they should vote in line with what their constituents want. That that to me, I totally agree with, because that is essentially um, a kind of direct democracy argument. It's almost like saying that who we elect doesn't matter as long as they merely do whatever their constituents want. 
I absolutely agree with that. And if there was some sort of law that said that, that, that representatives had to poll their constituents and then do whatever that polling said, I'd be in favor. But that's not American democracy. And in order to achieve that, you would have to have a revolution. And in fact, there's lots of there's lots. I mean, in the history of America, there's lots of case law and examples of 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 um, of actively fighting against that idea that representatives should actually represent their constituents. That's not what American mm-hmm. democracy means. American democracy means we elect people who then are given the exclusive decision making power. And it doesn't matter if they represent us or not because we elected them. So this shift, though, towards they should represent well, us. Well, they're able to do that because we are re-electing them. No, they're, they're able to do whatever they want because they're being re-elected as well. No, they're able to do that because the founding fathers didn't want direct democracy. They didn't want us to elect. And this is why I'm saying in the 19th century, they wouldn't even say what they believed. It wasn't important. It's like you voted for someone because they were a stand-up guy, not because they like agreed with you. Yeah, you know? no, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> and yeah. so I, so what we're, what we're arguing is this is, this is, this is the shift, though. This we're is, saying our reps should represent us. Right, yeah, exactly. Saying, and which is, <laughs> right, right, which yeah. I think would have been an alien notion maybe to earlier. No, I, I agree. It wasn't set up that way. It wasn't. That's right. And that's, and that's, but that's great. And I think that's the cultural shift so that's underway. You, right, right. How do you I, transform, I, right. how do you transform like social movements into into you know like what you're talking about like political parties and you gave a great example which I actually didn't know this but and I'm totally going to get her name wrong so, uh, but but you you talked about this woman in the in 1988 uh, from the New Alliance party right who uh, she was actually the first woman to get an all on the ballot in all 50 states in 1988 and that to me was like mind-blowing that I can't believe I didn't know that and I don't know how many people know that so can, can you tell me a little bit more about her and how she how she did it, how that was possible to do, even within the context of the systems that we do have. Yeah, it's a, no, it's a fascinating story. So her name is Dr. Lenora Falani, and I didn't know anything about her either until I was also interested in these, you know, questions of electoral movements and social movements and everything. And yeah, so there was a party, and in fact, we're coming up on the 30-year anniversary of this of the 1988 run. So in 1988, there was a party called the New Alliance Party, and they were fiercely independent. So they were neither Republicans nor Democrats, neither left nor right. And they they're based out of New York City, and they they um they basically did an extremely aggressive grassroots campaign where they went to every single state, gathered hundreds of thousands of signatures. I think they I think they had to gather like uh, 1.5 million signatures across the country, and they got this woman, this activist, she's a community organizer activist who used to kind of she was like a early her movement kind of pumped up Al Sharpton. So there's like early early community activism in the black community in New York City. And they if they successfully got her in the ballot, which is so remarkable because, of course, we all know that the Green Party wasn't able to do that in 2016. Mm-hmm. So they achieved, and this is before the internet, this is before cell phones. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you talk to them. I, I, I did a kind of a, a fellowship uh, and interviewed some of these people. And they talk about how they used to, you know, have to use pay phones, how they would go into bars at, you know, two in the morning to get signatures. Like, they, you know, they just, they had a very intense activist base. And I think the reason why I try to tell people this story is because one of the stumbling blocks that we do come up against is a kind of feeling that, well, it's impossible for us to get an independent candidate on the ballot anyways, so we might as well vote for, you know, Democrat Republican Party. And and it, and and that part of that is because the Democratic establishment hated and still hates Dr. Lenora Falani. Like if you talk to like, you know, big New York City Democrat organizers, like they hate her, <laughs> you know, and partly because because of this idea that that um, that you can work outside the party and and what that would mean. Um, and so it is a super inspiring example. But it but again, it, it has to go deeper because it's not just a one day protest. That's a great example. It's hard work and it's continued. 
effort. And, yeah, and right. she got on the ballot, but she only gathered, like, I think total votes in 1988. She got, like, you know, I think it was, like, a quarter of a million votes, so like 200,000 votes. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> low. So so there's, you know, and, and then there's a whole challenge of, like I'm saying, whereas I don't know if it's enough just to get one person elected or if you need to get, like, a movement elected. I think that's that's a difference thing, too. But I think it does point to the possibility that, if you want it, if we wanted it bad enough, yeah, we could get an independent candidate on the ballot in all 50 states. The Women's March, they could have they could have gathered the signatures necessary during the Women's March in like three hours, but with all the people that were in the streets that day. So it is possible, but it has to do with like a desire and a kind of imagination. Hmm. Yeah, I was I was really uh, just super fascinated by the story, especially because she's a woman and. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us think like, oh, my God, we were so excited to possibly have the first woman elected uh, and what felt like the first time ever. I mean, in 1988, I wasn't even in the U.S., um, but uh, but so that was fascinating to me just thinking about, oh, like there's actually examples from the past that we can learn for that we can learn from that we can build from. And it's also about knowing like our history, right? Like knowing the history of protest and uh, when they were effective and maybe when they fell short and the things that we could learn from from those times in history to do better and and accomplish the the change that we want that we want to see. Um, I don't want to take up too much more time from you guys. So I just wanted to just to close and and ask each of you if you had any kind of just like final thoughts that you'd that you'd want to leave us with. Sign up for issue voter. Can I say that? <laughs> I mean, you just you just did. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, uh, like you know, like I I've been a long time uh, user of Issue Voter. I think since you first since you first launched it, um, it is something that at least just makes me like, oh my god, there's this new bill coming up for vote, and so I go and I click on it, and I you know, and I um, my representative's Ted Lou, and 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 he does like I think represent me very well, and and and. Um, votes the way that that I that I hope he would keep voting. Um, so I do, uh, you know. I think that's something that that for me is something that if you go out and you protest, it's sort of like the follow up, right? Like, how do we close the deal? Like, perhaps the perhaps the the march is sort of like the pitch for something where you're like visible, you're there, but then you have to close the deal, and you have to close the deal like continually be closing deals right and and yep. so continually staying engaged and staying connected and and taking more actions that that can lead to sort of that um to those changes um even if you know they're small changes at first but i think if we keep making those small changes and i think the the biggest thing for me right now is people want to get involved people want to see change people are being active in a way that I haven't really seen people be active like all the time. And and so I really want to encourage people to continue to be active, to continue to care, uh, to continue to go vote, get your friends to go vote, pe- register people to vote. Like there's all these things that we can do that I do think combined, they'll make a difference and they'll make a change. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to, to, to give a kind of final thought, I mean, I think that I would just kind of reiterate that I think we all know that electoral, that elections will play some sort of role in transforming society, that you, I don't think that I'm starting to be more and more convinced that a, that a revolution in America is going to have to involve some sort of vote. You would have to, that basically the revolutionaries have to get voted into power. But at the same time, I think we need to kind of um, be skeptical of some of the orthodoxy on the progressive side, because I don't think it's enough to find candidates that 
that are good people. I do think that we have to go further down this direction of the argument that basically who we should who we elect should be more like delegates. They should be they should carry out our wishes and not their wishes. And that mm-hmm. that in itself doesn't sound that revolutionary, but that is the most revolutionary claim because yeah. that's that's not what we have right now. And, it, and, and, and we don't have that right now by design, you know. And so um, and, and the question then is, well, how do you build a social movement that can make collective decisions and then appoint someone to carry them out? And that's and once we solve that, I think we'll see transformative change. But until then, I think we're kind of stuck in this moment. And and so it's 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 an interesting and exciting moment. But I do think we need to keep digging deeper. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited for people to to listen to this and just thank you so much for having this conversation with me and and sharing and sharing your thoughts and being so honest about how how you view protest and how you view the social change we're trying to make. So, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So, that was a super interesting conversation. I told you all this would be intriguing. I kept trying to think of a word, other word than fascinating and intriguing was what we came up with in the room. And I think it really, really sums it up. I learned so much. Uh, it really challenged my my thinking. Um, you know, I still am just a huge believer that it's important to go protest. It's important to be active. And I do think that even small things like signing a petition can have an impact. But I do want to challenge all of us to do more and to stay engaged every single day because these issues aren't going away. So if you like the conversation, uh, make sure to share it with your friends. Make sure to review Crooked Conversations on iTunes or Spotify, wherever else you listen. Subscribe. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I kind of Snapchat, but not really, at Julissa Arce. And I hope to see you next time. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.